Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing pretty well, Lance. And on this day today, as you're listening to this, if you're listening to this on release date, it is January 20th, 2021, which is otherwise known as Inauguration Day in the United States of America. So this episode, Lance, is especially timely to be released today. This interview came to us by way of our good friend and our colleague, the creator and host, the producer of the Incel Project, the podcast that is on the Crawl Space Media Network. She also has another side project that you can find on the Crawl Space Media Network called Escape Hate, which is part of an organization called Light Upon Light. And we speak with her and the founder of Light Upon Light, Jesse Morton. Yes. So Nama Cates and Jesse Morton are both on this interview with us, and we speak a lot about polarization, extremism, hate. And Jesse Morton has quite an amazing background, doesn't he, Lance? Yeah, he's got a terrifying background. He's also one of the smartest people I think we've ever talked to. He educated himself while in federal prison. He was in solitary confinement for, I think he said, a year. He was sentenced to solitary confinement for a year, but convinced one of the guards to let him into the uh, library where he studied up on law, really educated himself on socioeconomics, etc., he used to be a prolific recruiter for Al-Qaeda back in the early 2000s, and it essentially started, as he says in the interview, after George W. Bush told Americans and the world, either you're with the terrorists or you're with us. And Jesse lacked a, a certain identity at that time in his life, and he thought to himself, okay, well, I'm going to go with the terrorists. And he became one of the first persons, perhaps even the first person, to inform these terrorist organizations that they should be using social media like Facebook or MySpace to recruit, to have their rallies and instead of passing out flyers, take videos and post them on this new platform that was social media. And he's responsible for a lot of that. Uh, but he's turned everything around and he's using all of that knowledge to create a new identity for himself and to mold himself into something better. And he started or co-founded the Parallel Networks and Light Upon Light and is also working with Nama on this podcast from Crawl Space Media called Escape Hate. And the conversation is timely because it's a little bit political. We talk a little bit about what happened at the Capitol in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, 2021. And we talk about what could happen on today, Inauguration Day. And as you're listening to this interview, Jesse has a couple of terms that he uses, which opened up my mind to a lot of the mindset out there. One of them was propaganda of the deed, and the other term was identity fusion. So listen to those and, and look that up. Uh, a lot of what is happening today can be explained by researching those two terms. Okay, so I hope you find this interview, this conversation, as enlightening as we did and please follow Jesse and Nama on social media. There are links in the show notes. You can check out Light Upon Light at lightuponlight.online. Thanks for listening, everybody. Check us out on Twitter at CrawlspacePod. We are being joined now by Nama Cates and Jesse Morton of Escape Hate. How are you both? 
good. Very good. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Thank you uh, for giving us really important um, information today. I, I feel like the work that the two of you do is really important in the current climate that is the world and the country today. And, um, you know, we've known Nama for a few years now with Incel and Escape Hate and the work she's done with Light Upon Light. Uh, this is the first time we've met you, Jesse. So very nice to meet you. Um, you have an incredible story. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to, uh, for having me. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the work that you guys do, particularly the work that you guys do with Nama. So I'm honored. Thanks. Cool. Thanks a lot. Well, can you tell us a little bit about how you two came together to start Escape Hate? Yeah, sure. I can start that. Um, we first uh, started talking, I think, over Twitter as the result of the trailer for Incel. It was getting some, you know, pushback, as you guys know, like I was getting some flack online for it. And people thinking that like it was going to be uh, uh, platforming dangerous people and stuff like that. And um, someone that was following me and Jesse might be able to actually get a little bit more specific about who that was because I'm not as sure how it came about if it's relevant. Um, I think told Jesse like, oh, there's someone doing this this work and they're getting um, all kinds of pushback about it. So that was how we started talking and. When we did, um, you know, we, like Jesse told me about his story, his work, um, the approach that he takes. And I really found it, uh, sounded really interesting and really promising. And I think before episode two, um, which was the frail, pale, stale male one, which was gonna talk a bit about suicide, um, I decided that I should, that it would only be responsible to include some kind of resource for people who might be triggered by that subject. And I asked if I could use uh, the Light Upon Light uh, hotline as that resource. So that, that was how it started. Nama, had you been aware of uh, Jesse before this? Did you, did you have any knowledge of who, who, who he was? Um, I made a connection that I actually did, uh, funnily enough, um, after we started talking because he'd been in a, a documentary I saw, I think on Showtime. Um, so I realized that I did, but that was after we, we first spoke. And when I realized that I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> that's the guy from that, that movie. Interesting. What was the, what was the documentary? Feel free to give a plug. Um, Jesse, do you remember what it was? It was it was on uh, Showtime. I don't remember the name of it. I think it might have been called American Jihad or something like that. Yeah, it was a call a documentary uh, called American Jihad on the uh, evolution of jihadist radicalization in the United States. And for anybody who doesn't know, can you give a bit of a background of yourself, why you're featured on this, and your I guess your your past with um, being a recruiter for Al Qaeda. Sure, um, I'll give you the three minute version, and then if you want me to expound upon that, I'd be happy to. I'm I'm impressed you have a three minute version. We'll try to get it out in three minutes. It's a don't worry. Day, I suppose you could say. 
But essentially, I am, by all accounts, it should have been at least uh, all American. That's the title American Jihad, because as a American that was never affiliated with any contact with the Islamic religion, but underwent my own frustrations with American society, particularly in my house, and then dealing with American culture, which can be quite traumatizing. Uh, I found myself looking for an identity, looking for meaning, looking for purpose, first founded in far leftist sort of counterculturalism and traveled around as sort of a a vagabond slash hippie slash drug dealer for several years, which of course did not end well, ended in addiction, uh, ended in incarceration. And in that period, I found sort of a new sense of uh, something to identify with. And that was the autobiography of Malcolm X, which ultimately led me to convert to Islam shortly before 9-11. I converted to Islam shortly before 9-11. And it was really beautiful because the prayer and the fasting and all of those practices sort of allowed me to gain sobriety and stability in my life. But because of the trauma and the background that preceded it, uh, I was susceptible to recruitment first my own recruitment, and that occurred at the hands of a Moroccan veteran of the Afghan Soviet Jihad who was living in Virginia uh, in the U.S., and he sort of taught me about all of these prophecies that were coming true as far as they saw it. The Taliban had established God's law or the Sharia uh, in Afghanistan, and there was a prophecy that said the black flag would be raised in Afghanistan and it would not be stopped until it reached Jerusalem. Uh, I was really anti-Israeli. Uh, at the time. So it sort of resonated with my uh, prior political affiliations and thinking as an anarchist. But the Islam gave me a complete transformation and in so many ways was helpful. Um, But ultimately, I gravitated when George Bush told us, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. I was one of the few in America that said, I'd rather be with the terrorists than with my own society. And I gravitated toward uh, more extremist interpretations of Islam rose the ranks, uh, and this is the period of 2003 till 2011 when I was an active extremist. And in 2003, I came on the scene and I met one of the most prolific radicalization and recruitment agencies that was operating out of London, but had an offshoot in New York City. And I came into their collective with some sort of innovative all-American ideas, if you will. I saw that the world (laughs) of the internet communication was transitioning into social media 2.0. Facebook, Twitter, YouTube were on the rise. And I said, I don't know why you guys are doing in-person discussions and why you guys are doing these uh, on-the-street rallies. What you should be doing is shooting your on-the-street rallies and recording your in-person discussions and putting them on the internet to exploit uh, these new platforms. And so we kind of mastered that art before there was radicalization and recruitment. I guess, unfortunately, you could say that I'm the guy that's responsible for making ISIS and Al-Qaeda's message transition into a way that it would appeal to the American mindset. It was almost like jihadism on Madison Avenue, if you will. Uh, And uh, in so many ways, we now see that same sort of evolution unfolding with regard to this concern for the far right. But long story short, uh, in 2010, I threatened the writers of South Park for portraying the Prophet Muhammad in a cartoon. It caused international controversy. I knew the US government was going to incarcerate me. I fled to Morocco. By fleeing fleeing to Morocco to avoid arrest, I didn't realize that I would be putting myself for a year outside of the network that had sort of, we call it identity fusion or groupthink, right? So the group, the organization, the terrorist collective had become me. And by separating my body from that and my mind from that with infrequent communication, I started to be able to learn how to think for myself again. And lived in Morocco during the Arab Spring, really re-identified with the value of free societies and individual liberty, but was afraid to change had to face the consequences of American 
arrest. They came, they had the Moroccans arrest me. I spent five months in a Moroccan prison, uh, talked a lot about theology with a former uh, extremist cleric that I had translated his stuff online uh, and knew very well, uh, was sent back to the U.S., housed in solitary confinement for a year, uh, but managed to convince a guard to take me to the law library four days a week, 10-hour shifts a day, uh, so 40 hours a week in a law library surrounded by books, uh, including the Encyclopedia Britannica's Great Books of the Western World, biographies of America's founding fathers, uh, basic books on philosophy, uh, real high-level type thinking from like Daniel Kahneman, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and others that I really fell in love with. And I started to reconstruct an identity around Enlightenment thinking, and I'd go back into the cell for those other hours during the week and read the Quran through an Enlightenment lens. Ultimately, what happened, I was sentenced to 11 and a half years in prison. They were trying to start this thing in the United States out of the Obama administration called countering violent extremism, something nobody had really heard of. Uh, and they started to come ask me questions uh, from the government because at some point in time, an FBI agent who was a female realized that, like, this is not the same guy that we uh, issued the indictment for. Um, long story short, some of my students ended up traveling to ISIS, replicating my model, stealing the uh, template that I had created for English language jihadi magazines and other sorts of propaganda um, outlets, templates and methodologies. Um, and in my cooperation with government and in my uh, providing guidance on how we might be able to, quote unquote, counter violent extremism here in the United States, um, I was released early from incarceration and returned to society on March 1st, 2015. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, not shortly, but pretty shortly, in 2016, I went public as America's first former jihadist um, and have been working uh, through um, fits and starts, um, bursts and falls uh, to combat uh, polarization, uh, hate and extremism here in the United States. And I run this organization called Parallel Networks, which is running a domestic program called Light Upon Light, which essentially, as the, um, as the founder of that organization and looking for like-minded individuals based upon what I call my Parallel Networks philosophy, that's how I found NAMA, very concerned about um, some of the things that I was seeing with regard to groups like the incels. I found that what she was doing was completely compatible and ran parallel with the approach that we were trying to take, um, an empathy-based approach in particular. Um, and we started to collaborate and continue to try to do uh, good work together and look for synergistic uh, capabilities and capacities. Wow. What, what a story. Um, where to start on this? I will say you said something in the beginning of this where you remembered uh, how this started for you when George W. Bush said, if you're, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And that's what made up your mind. And we're now, really face-to-face -face with how words affect people and groups, especially people who are looking for an identity. And I don't think that that was considered back then when he said that, when he said those words, because he, he could have said many things to get that point across. But what he said essentially sparked everything you just, just described to us how to recruit online, how to manipulate the internet to grow the terrorist cells. I mean, it's incredible. I, I, I put more of the onus on a leader of the free world saying something like that without realizing, yeah, it sounds like tough guy talk, but what it's doing is actually giving birth to a whole 
segment of the population that is looking for something alternative like yourself. Indeed. I mean, briefly, and, and then I, I'm sure Nama has much to say on this as well. I mean, we think in terms of uh, splitting the world into black and white. That's what we always accuse extremists of doing, right? They're, they have a sort of bimodal line of thinking. Everything is us versus them. It's a very Manichaean perspective. But then what we oftentimes don't realize is that we ourselves do it in response. And that's the objective of terrorism and extremism. Propaganda of the deed, which has radically transformed over the years due to restrictions or lack of restrictions and spatial and temporal restriction associated with the internet. So now we're all interconnected. But like when you do that and your response is at the equivalent level of consciousness of the extremists or the terrorists you're trying to combat, what you send a message to uh, that community is, is that either you support us wholeheartedly in the same black and white manner, or you belong with them. And a lot of people would like to add a lot of nuance to that statement. You're either with us or you're with the terrorists. So I might say that bringing it up to modern day, if we look at the response of the Biden administration to what happened to Capitol Hill, quote unquote, siege and the brandishing of them as terrorists a day after the attack, he came out and called them terrorists. Uh, and in fact, they're not a monolith and we need to understand things with nuance. And it leaves absolutely no ability to talk over polarization. And then in final conclusion, and something we might want to elaborate on, this is what we know about the way that people react, like confirmation bias drives our thinking. And so we're always going to select facts that agree with our worldview. And when we're told that you're either with X or you're with Y, we're very conducive to tribalistic behavior. And at a collective level, democracies can't function like that. So I will say that bin Laden had a 20-year plan to bleed the American system to bankruptcy, by creating the war on terror and creating an overreaction, the likes of which George Bush gave us in the aftermath of 9-11. And his objective was not to destroy us militarily, but to lure us abroad so that we would waste resources that would exhaust our ability to care about our own people. And that as a consequence, some 15 years into that war, he predicted that there would be hyperpolarization and that democracies could not function when their societies were divided into two camps, that bipartisan or um, uh, dual party democracies were uh, very weak as he saw it. And so for all of those reasons, uh, I think we can end by saying we might be replicating the same mistakes we made in the direct aftermath of 9-11 with regard to our response to current conditions where there should be concern. But I don't think that the response is going to make things better as we see them unfolding in front of us. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty, uh, pretty incredible to consider the long-term goals of someone like Osama bin Laden. I, I was just, uh, I was just uh, agreeing with you whenever I hear uh, Jesse talk about that, about Osama bin Laden's long-term plan and how it seems to be kind of coming to fruition. It's, you know, a little scary. Yeah, it, it is truly scary because everybody wants to go into a place like that and, and drop bombs and, and deploy troops, and that's how you solve it. But it doesn't matter how many troops you put in there. It's already happened. You know, it, it, the deed is already done. Speaking of that, uh, Jesse, you mentioned something called propaganda of the deed. Uh, can, can you define that for us? Well, propaganda of the deed is the very onset of modern terrorism. It is the first ideology that meant it's, it's conducted in the late 19th century by anarchists in Russia. Um, and essentially their objective was that by carrying out terrorist attacks against uh, key governmental officials, uh, you were basically espousing an ideology 
which was against the power structure, and that the objective, the strategy, was to force the state to respond in a manner that would create popular support for the terrorist cause. Um, and uh, that is something that has been sort of outdated because now we have propaganda. The deed is essentially a strategic communication because of the broad reach that modern communications facilitate. But uh, one of the things that we look at in the realm of terrorism studies is waves of terrorism. And it starts with anarchism. Um, and we can always see these waves. It was, you know, sort of liberation movements, uh, anti-colonialist movements in the 50s. And we saw this with fascism. Uh, and we saw we saw this with other components of of, of extremism. And then we had this shift in 9-11 to a religious fundamentalist version of it. And 9-11 would be considered propaganda of the deed at the most extraordinary sense that most have a recollection of in our, in our modern history. Well, uh, I, I was actually, I don't have much to add about, you know, propaganda of the deed though. I've been learning a lot about it and learning a lot from Jesse. Um, but just going back to, you know, what Lance's question about hearing a world leader make a certain kind of statement and people um, writing it off as tough guy talk or whatever else they do. Um, you know, there's obviously some of that going on right now. <laughs> there's been some of that going on for the past uh, four years that, that Trump's been in office. And um, I think most of us, probably most of the listeners, um, we'd probably look at that statement and, um, you know, see how it could be referring to Trump's sort of very rude talk and brash statements. Um, and one thing that I've been sort of learning by working with Jesse, studying the subject and working with my group, the incels and dealing with the feedback I get is that, you know, there's also an equal sort of, um, as Jesse would refer to it, reciprocal relationship between both sides. There's an onus on the other side too. There's the kind of language we use about, I think it began with, you know, the basket of deplorables comment and this idea that half the country are stupid or ignorant or less than. And that's been going on in, in the mainstream media for the entirety of the administration and it, it's not helping matters. And uh, and you were talking about um, sort of partisan politics or behavior, and um, how is how, how can we get out of that? I guess is my question. Well, I, I think as as media, we have a a big responsibility. I think a lot of it does come from media. I think that the way that uh, things are are covered, you know, as Jesse said, Web two point and the internet and social media certainly kind of accelerates things by. Uh, lifting up the most controversial material because it gets more reactions from people. But um, it's also the idea of clickbait and of the 24 hour news cycle and of painting easy stories. The whole, you know, you're with us or against us narrative is a very easy and kind of natural and comfortable one for the tribal human brain to embrace. It's very easy to get caught up in something like that, especially if you don't have much faith in your government, in your society, for whatever reason. And I think people right now, the, those people that, you know, stormed the Capitol um, are, you know, they have what I would call misplaced anger. 
but um, it comes from all kinds of factors, factors of feeling like, you know, they're left out of society, that things economically aren't very promising, um, that kids now aren't doing as well as their parents were or as well as they expected to be. You see that on both sides. So there's this anger and people think that what they're doing is targeting the, the elites, the institutions, you know, the rich people, the powerful people, but it ends up just pitting them against each other. Yeah. I mean, I would jump in there real quick and just continue in that vein. I mean, I think that one of the positive things about what's gone on over the recent years is that everyone left and right, that particularly amongst the youth uh, has appetite for alternative media and is not considering the mainstream conglomerates that tend to, you know, control most of the information that we see as, as, as appropriate or as interesting. And so there's massive appetite for alternative information. The problem is, is that what we see formulating is echo chambers on both sides where there's no ability to build bridges and to paint nuance. Like it's also not just our nature to be tribalistic, but it's also our nature to appreciate simplistic narratives that have clear heroes, clear villains and clear quests. And everyone sees themselves on a quest on the left to address structural racism and whatnot. Uh, on the right to preserve something that's being taken away from them, thereby, if they don't have that villain on the other side, which both sides fulfill the characteristic clearly, um, then they can't have that quest that can mobilize the ideas to action. However, I agree with Nama, I think, and I think that Crawl Space is a good example of a medium and of an organization uh, that is doing so, which is crafting and meeting the demand of people for more appetite, for more depth, um, and um, using podcasting as a medium that has evolved is really fascinating because I think one of the main reasons it has evolved, even like Jordan Peterson on YouTube and Phenomenon that are similar, is that people are just tired of the simplistic, overly simplistic narratives that are fed to them by the corporate conglomerates that basically view them as human beings reduced to what can we induce you to spend with the commercials that appear between this small clip that is describing you or emphasizing that you should be a human being competing for limited resources and pursuing your own interest and that it's perfectly normal to behave that way. Um, I think art that adds nuance gets above and beyond that. And, um, and, and, and I think that uh, the demand for substantive media is, is, is actually something that we should be optimistic about and fulfill a need. Uh, in that manner. And that's basically what NAMA does and what you guys do and to some degree what we do as well. Yeah, definitely. And I'm 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 curious about how you think um or your opinion on how ego plays into uh these these conversations um from identifying that at one time you did not have a sense of belonging uh, so you had to join a, a particular tribe to identifying the fact that you as a as a uh, American uh, citizen are supposed to be a consumer. I, I feel like ego has a lot to do with people getting over the fact that you're, you're kind of being used. And when I say you, I mean like the public, like the general public. Uh, how do you feel like ego plays into all of this? I mean, I think that from a Freudian sense, the concept of ego is interesting because of the psychoanalytical correlation to like sexuality and the oversexualization of why we do what we do. Um, but uh, but I, I think I think mostly that's like 
resonant with regard to the evolution of marketing and the way that psychoanalysis and the cigarette sticks of the women and empowerment and these messages kind of mold who we are. But I do think that like when you're surrounded by um, media and by a culture that feeds an ego that's really closer to trying to get you to act like you're in accordance with the dark triad, if you will, like the narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathologies that are associated with a dark triad, you're feeding a culture into your society that is unhealthy. And a lot of people that are counterculturalists that grow up and let's say you don't come from the, you know, the 10% of our economic class that, you know, predominantly control the wealth and you're from amongst working class peoples, you're like these people, everybody kisses their ass because they have money and they have prestige, but they're not like intelligent and they have no depth. And so there's like this way where you can satisfy your ego without the stability and the wealth of the predominant class as a working class kid like I was, where you can just tune out of the culture and it's in entirety and find meaning and significance first in ideas. And then on, in, in today's day and age, people that are thinking like you're thinking with regard to your rejection of the mainstream society, um, they create a system that gives you a hell of a lot more than a sort of uh, an egoistic approach of, of your circumstance that's revolving around sort of that whole over-sexualization of things or tempting the emotion. And they start to give you things that look like, oh, life is about just more than what you can consume and what you can achieve. It's much deeper than that. Um, and then for extremists, it's like in order to get to a state of society that's deeper than that, we kind of have to destroy what exists right now. Um, and that's where you begin that slippery trek towards like um, a, a, the end justifies the means type thinking. But um, I, you know, I mean, like ego is a big part of it because we all have a need to be recognized. We all have a need to feel significant, to find community and to be loved. Unfortunately, in a society that tells us we're supposed to pursue our own selves, uh, the culture that we've created is not conducive to a lot of people in our society realizing that. And unfortunately, while it hurts, I would say that that is essentially what led me down a path of drifting along, traumatized, trying to find purpose and meaning. And I probably would have latched on to anything that came my way. I like to say that if I was born in the 70s, I probably would have been handing out pamphlets pamphlets uh, on factory floors, right? It's just the context. And in the context of the war on terror, I chose the big, bad jihadist. Maybe even today I would have chose the big, bad right-wing extremist. But um, uh, it's something to basically say, screw you. Uh, your way of thinking is wrong and you guys serve your own interest and we're going to tear you down. Um, and that feeds your ego substantially. You feel like you're rising up against oppression and, and, and you're feeding yourself. And then when people like you and retweet you now, back then in the day, it was how many people show up to your lecture, whatever the case may be, you start to feel like you have power uh, for the first time in your life. And it can be really invigorating and empowering. Yeah, that certainly happens uh, a lot with incels and you talk about um, ego and about uh, our current culture and about the role that social media plays, you know, um, they talk about a lookist society and when everything is about your popularity and your popularity is maybe in part determined by the quality of your Instagram photos and filters, that's very shallow and that leads people to feel left out. And when they feel left out, not only left out, but also like their concerns, their grievances aren't even taken seriously at all, but dismissed, um, you know, of course, a lot of them are going to look for something else and something very extreme. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How do conspiracies play into this? Well, uh, I'll, I'll start and then I'll pass it over to Jesse. He could probably talk a lot more uh, eloquently about it. Um, I know that uh, conspiracies basically start, you know, from a place of, like we mentioned before, um, a distrust for the institutions, you know, whether it's mainstream media, whether it's the academy, whether it's the government, um, there's some distrust of that. And that usually comes from sometimes uh, or, or oftentimes even uh, legitimate situations, experiences people have had where they feel like they're being lied to. They feel like what they're watching is slick and produced and not telling the truth and what they're seeing before them. The promises that they're given um, aren't kept and the reality is something very different. So that is the first uh, ingredient for someone to perhaps become drawn to uh, a conspiracy. And then um, conspiracy theories themselves usually both, in my opinion, oversimplify and really overcomplicate stories to where there is... um, a designated enemy, some cabal of people, you know, this, uh, you know, whether it's like royal families or Knights Templar or whatever it is that people talk about, you know, um, having all kinds of uh, hidden shadowy powers. Um, And that's, you know, when you think about it logically, that's actually more complicated, but in sort of an emotional narrative sense, it's simpler, like rather than all these complexities of, you know, economic reasons and um, professional reasons and geographic circumstances and that the process of, you know, we talk about COVID, the process of why a vaccine might take a long time to develop, et cetera, et cetera. Rather than looking at all these complexities, it's easier to just point to this one sort of group that is controlling everything. And so that can be seductive to people. Yeah, I mean, um, I echo what Nama says, and it basically provides some comfort and conditions of uncertainty. So people open up to conspiracy theories when um, they are living under uh, mental cognitive conditions of uncertainty. Uh, whether that's a socioeconomic or whether that's just political context or whether that's just with regard to the culture not feeding their spiritual nourishment. What we say is that they're basically operating from a space in the mind that is in fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, they're basically in a traumatized state. And when a conspiracy theory comes, it's like, oh, okay, so I'm not responsible for my own plight. It's not, I didn't do anything. It's these evil Jews over here plotting in secret rooms uh, to implement the uh, protocols of the elders of Zion. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's a really dangerous uh, way to think. Uh, and it, 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 it creates susceptibility and runs quite compatible to the black and white us versus them perspectives that we've been talking about throughout this conversation. It also gives people 
a feeling of like I'm in on, you know, I'm in on the, the actual truth. And that's like a, a feeling of importance that makes people feel elevated, makes people feel, who feel otherwise excluded feel like they're part of this club that no one else really, you know, knows about. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, you had mentioned, Nama, that these people are given this perception of what it's going to be, and it's not that thing. And we just were fortunate enough to see that firsthand with the people that stormed the Capitol. They were fed all of this for years, and it built up and built up. And now we're hearing stories about how this there, there might have been people who had cased it, had gone on tours, and and had, you know, known the 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 ins and outs of the building uh, prior to this. So it was premeditated. So you're talking about this premeditated thing, this act that was instigated in so many words by the nation's leader. But the reality of it, like you said, is so much different because none of these people expected that it wouldn't work. That it's some like what did they expect? Did they expect to go in there and Donald Trump now has another four years that you know everyone's gonna throw their hands up and be like, You guys won, okay, let's put him back in office for four years. The reality of it is you just went into the nation's capital and now you're not on a you're you're on a no fly list. Now you now you are going to jail. And and it, it, it there there's pictures of it online of people carrying shit out of there and and the lawyers for these people are saying well they just got caught up in the moment uh, the moment the how long was the moment last you know the the moment's been lasting like five years for some of these people so it, very interesting observation by by just bringing the reality to the to the situation. It's not what what was presented. What how did how did people deal with it at that point? Yeah, I mean, it is a culmination of a series of conspiracy theories that go right back to the war on terror and the whole argument over globalists. And globalists can be interpreted as a conspiracy theory that the liberal elite are trying to control our societies, but it also more nefariously typically traces itself back to an anti-Semitic compatible compatibility with the whole Jewish cabal financiers running the world and exploiting the non-Jewish population this time targeting white people um in the case of the of, of the right-wing uh, conspiracy theorists but yeah you're right I mean one thing that good propagandists know is the value of a good conspiracy theorist so um Osama bin Laden's conspiracy theory was that the uh Zionist crusader Hindu alliance or what he called the New World Order, uh, was effectively trying to do the same thing with the Muslim world, which was suppress Islam and the ability it had to liberate its people, uh, frame it in a very religious way, and attach itself to prophecy. So these people marched the Capitol because they thought it was prophesized that Donald Trump was going to uh, attain success regardless of the outcome of the election. And the people that were pulling the strings were starting, and we will learn more and more about it, uh, we saw it as soon as the tweet went up from Trump. Uh, Trump told them to go wild. Uh, he linked to a report from uh, Peter Navarro, uh, which outlined electoral fraud, uh, which uh, gave some sort of an empirical evidence base to the conspiracy theory. Um, and if you look, if you linked on the report that was on the StopTheSteal.com website, then you could have foretold what we're seeing unfolding now, because that report was hosted on a website called Bannon's War Room. 
Uh, and so uh, Steve Bannon is back in charge and he has his boy and the Make America Great Again uh, sort of movement will continue to go on because they're not going to let these people withhold that belief that don't worry about it. Even though we didn't win our challenge, Trump is still prophesized to return. Um, and that's why it might be a good thing to impeach him. So he can't run for president again in four years. Um, but essentially, they're going to continue the trope. We found out yesterday that Trump was in direct contact with Steve Bannon for a long time uh, in the previous weeks and that they are mending uh, the fracture that occurred. And that's a mastermind. That is an Osama bin Laden with 25 percent of America's population at his fingertips. Uh, and he knows how to run conspiracy theory and he knows how to mobilize and turn conspiracy theory into action. And we saw that. I mean, the reason that those people were casing the Capitol and the reason that some fringe adherents uh, in that movement were embedded in that movement. We heard from the Proud Boys that they weren't going to organize on their own, that they were going to blend in. Um, and that's because they knew they could push the crazies to do what they wanted them to do. And they became puppeteers. Uh, in the process. And that's becoming clearer and clearer throughout the day. The question is, how do you respond to that? And the answer is certainly not in the way that we're doing right now. How is the cult of Trump able to identify with a section of people who would otherwise have absolutely nothing in common with somebody like Trump or the Trump family? Well, um, I mean, for starters, it's the idea of an outsider. We don't trust the political establishment and this is an outsider. He doesn't talk like they do. We don't trust that slick, you know, sort of telegrams, uh, teleprompter speeches. Um, and this is someone who tells it like it is. He also has a, a story of being, you know, a self-made businessman that people can uh, relate to. Even people that seem to have wildly different values from him, you know, um, and I think it's important to mention like this QAnon uh, phenomenon that's going on uh, because QAnon is um, something that I think started off, you know, it's not nefarious in the way that some of these other conspiracy theories are, or it doesn't seem to be directly. Um, and it can draw in like women and mothers and people concerned about children because the, the story is about children, about pedophilia. Um, and so if you link Trump as the sort of savior of these children, and that might seem like a big stretch to do, but to people who've been following this story, that's, that's the story. I was listening to uh, the last episode of Escape Hate, and um, I'm pretty sure you, you all recorded that before the, the Capitol riot and, and what happened on uh, January 6th. Um, in that episode, Jesse, you you were talking about how this polarization is going to get worse. Um, you sort of predicted that, and uh, and then we saw that. Um, is that still true, or was that what you were talking about, the Capitol riot? I think that's a manifestation of something that could have been predicted, but we couldn't have predicted when. Um, I didn't think it would happen until January 20th, so I will say I was off by two weeks for certain. Um, but that's not, that's, that's irrelevant when you look at uh, the reciprocity of what you call reciprocal dehumanization. So like the real problem that we have when you hyperpolarize a society is that essentially you are looking at your other and you don't realize it, but you're not looking at your other as human beings. In fact, you're looking at them as something that deserves to be silenced. And I don't think that that's just on the right. 
And I think that the people that are on the right feel that grievance and experience that grievance. And I think some of that grievance is very real. I think people look at them as stupid, uneducated, and think that um, they're the, that they themselves on the left have this ability to think with nuance and to appreciate the grays and to understand like truth and science. And in fact, far cry from the truth. The confirmation bias that plagues both sides thinking is very cult-like. It's just that on the left, you have a decentralized cult that's based on an ethos, not a personality. Um, and it's dangerous on the right because personality cults tend to become fascism, uh, right? So like what you have with reciprocal dehumanization is a problem because you get stuck in a trap where there's enhanced dehumanization to the point where it usually leads to civil war. And the trajectories and the evolution of that through threshold analysis and all sorts of heavy duty math and then applied to the principles of like, how do you stop an epidemic uh, that in this case is hate, is that you have to be able to see some good in the other side and some negatives in your own side. And that's what it takes. And that's basically what Nama uh, has put together with Escape Hate is an ability to try to create uh, a small uh, outlet with media that documents that ability, the ability to do that, ability to go outside that black and white paradigm and to humanize all. It's also what I think is most amazing about Nama's work and most beautiful. Uh, about the incel podcast is her ability to get people who uh, had probably no interest nor awareness uh, oftentimes of the involuntary celibate community, right? But to then get them reeled into a podcast that portrays the ultimate humanity of us. And when you hear narratives like that, it really touches you and lets you recognize that the lowest of the low, it is the most important that you recognize them. The ones that are missing, the ones that are isolated, and we can't do that. And until we're able to do that and recognize that that occurs on both sides of the predominant uh, political partisan uh, aisles, um, we're going to see things exasperate and exasperate. The reaction to capital riots uh, of, of censorship online uh, is part and parcel of confirming the grievance and confirming the fact that you don't have a right to exist, but we do. There's just as much hatred, hateful uh, vitriol associated with far leftist protest. I mean, um, it's true. They attacked the Capitol building, so they threatened the power structure. So that's a lot more different than taking over like eight black, eight blocks of Portland or Seattle and implementing an autonomous zone where people are dying and you're calling the cops that want to go in and save people that are hurt pigs and telling them to get off the premises. I, I mean, I, at the at the end of the day, both sides have done the same thing. The reaction to this case and censoring their right to exist is just another indication that reciprocal dehumanization will take its next step. And ultimately, you either return to some homeostasis where people can talk about their issues and you give them a right to vent so that they have an alternative recourse to violence, or you get civil war. Oh, no, I'd like to add that, you know, since starting the incel podcast and doing all of this, I'm, I've definitely been aware of, you know, the culpability on the left. I mean, we might have had uh, a president who was in power on the right for the last four years, but the cultural capital is certainly in the left by far, you know, whether it's universities or media, both of those are overwhelmingly more leftist. And, um, and there is, there is definitely uh, hatred, call out culture, cancel culture, real dehumanization of the right as being stupid and as being, you know, having really uh, invalid points of view. And we kind of have to square with the fact that, 
always the population pretty much anywhere is going to be somewhat divided down the middle. So, you know, it's understandable to be tribal, but being tribal in that sense to this extent just doesn't make sense because it will always be, um, there will always be a, a struggle between those two in any society and silencing one side is really never going to be a good solution to that. Yeah. And I want to get your opinion on how to alleviate the fear that is intentionally placed on different parts of society. Like we're supposed to be afraid of the elite or we're supposed to be afraid of the left taking our jobs and our right to own guns. Everything comes from this place of if you don't do X, you have to be afraid of the repercussions. Like we were told that the suburbs are going to start, you know, we're, we're going to destroy the suburbs. So you got to be afraid for your suburbs now. You have to be afraid for your cities burning down. How do you start to alleviate that? Is it what you mentioned about identifying with the what was perceived as the lowest type of person, you know, it being introduced to the incels, for example, uh, we were, you know, are are we supposed to be afraid of the incels? And then you introduce us to incels and you realize this might not be the fear that was originally uh, told to me by mainstream media. What's your opinion on that? Um, I'll, I'll let you take this one mostly. Jesse just want to mention that, um, yeah, I think that that's definitely a start and that's some credit to the crawl space listeners for being as open-minded and curious as they've been because, uh, you know, not everyone has reacted to the podcast the way some of uh, these listeners have, and they've been really great. Yeah. And, 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 and to expound upon that, I do think it's true, but I do think that in general, um, we might say that uh, creativity uh, is what distinguishes us from acting like a, an animal herd. Uh, and that I think that we have to really appreciate the role that the arts and creativity can play. I think if we really look at social movements that have gotten societies out of messes like this one, there was always a spiritual ethos or a something attached to a consciousness that was addressing the problem at a higher order of thinking and a higher order of feeling. And oftentimes that was conveyed through art and um, medium like uh, podcasting in the, in the current era, because what we really do need to do is we need to get the depth of a person. We need to get outside of 30 second sound bites that repeat the capital attackers, the capital terrorists, the capital terrorists, but don't give us an insight into who they are. Like fact of the matter is thousands of people showed up for the capital uh, riots. Um, on the periphery of the Capitol riots were thousands and thousands and thousands of people that did not join. Um, and interestingly enough, in the aftermath of hearing about how all of them were, were, were extremists, uh, I found an article on the Washington Post that I also shared with Nama that like really brought you back into reality because there were interviews with Trump pro-Trump protesters that were brown and, 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 and Asian uh, and uh, African-American. Uh, and um, they were explaining uh, why they were there, 
uh, and uh, why they felt stigmatized. And you really got more of like a understanding that this was not a monolith, that we can't start to group people into groups. And once we start to group people into groups, it allows us to not see people as individuals. And if we don't see people as individuals, then we can dehumanize them. But art, if done properly, has typically uh, been the only means of affecting sustainable change in any society, if you really look at it through that lens. So I think we need to return to our creativity and we need to return to the gift of storytelling, which is something we've been doing since we were sitting around campfires as hunters and gatherers. And we need to really tell stories that tap into a spiritual ethos or a level of consciousness that can show that the people that we're demonizing might not be the demons we imagine them to be. And I think that's the route toward overcoming fear and uncertainty and under current conditions. So the way out of this is listening to people, is trying to understand where they're coming from and at least understanding their point of view. And in so doing, give them an opportunity to express themselves and to be heard. Uh, So listen strategically and as artists, uh, everyone on this call is sort of uh, in, in, in the realm of creating media uh, in one way or the other uh, to allow them to tell their own tale. Yeah, I, I was going to say um, that, you know, as artists or the storytellers, the people that frame the story, as Jesse mentioned, using creativity to perhaps tell a story that is compelling you know it's framed in a a way that's interesting to people that makes them want to tune back in um that makes them stay on for a subject they might have not otherwise considered is a power that we have and what is the uh background to the title light upon light so light upon light is an uh, an allegory in the quran Um, It talks about how God's light, of course, is outside the continuum of space versus time, so it can't be described, but how it manifests itself in several different layers, the final layer of which is consciousness that separates us from the rest of creation, uh, and that is something that we have to grapple with because it's like Prometheus in a sense. It's a blessing and a curse at the same time. It can be used for good and it can be used for evil so to say, but that enlightenment is the true purpose of our existence. And then for us, it was appropriate to use as the name of the organization, not just because of my Islamic background, but it taps into a really important quote. I think that Albert Einstein from amongst the gens that he left us with, he said that no uh, problem has ever been solved at the same level of consciousness that creates it. So what we need is a new enlightenment. If we're going to get ourselves out of this uh, situation we need to learn how to come to grapple with the alterations in communication with the alterations in our societies and we're still learning how to do so and i think ultimately at the end of the day one way or the other we will learn how to do so but i think that the way we'll learn how to do so is to encapsulate and embody what we're learning in the scientific realm and implement it in ways that are creative uh, and to impart a better awareness of what we're learning about things like consciousness and creativity and art and, um, and, and, and the human condition. We're actually not in any way, shape or form pre-programmed to uh, live in a world of survival of the fittest, seeking you know, our own needs in a world of scarce resources. We're actually programmed the more and more we learn about it to be empathetic. And it is our society that covers that. Um, we need to unleash that and get that back. Um, And I think that's the key to the light upon light paradigm is even if it only ever uh, grows to a point where it influences a handful of individuals or it influences small numbers of individuals, 
the ultimate intention, the idealistic notion behind it is to help contribute to what could be considered a new enlightenment. Wow, what a wonderful conversation. You, I, I have no other words other than uh, to say you both have these incredibly uh, beautiful minds, and it's so refreshing to talk to people like this and to get an, an answer like that, how much thought was put into the uh, organization Light Upon Light and the mission and uh, just understanding the entire spectrum of the current state of everything. It's, it's uh, remarkable. I know. And sometimes I, I feel like I do have an open mind, but sometimes lately with this extreme uh, polarization, I find like I, I don't want to hear that. So I think, I think that's really interesting to note that you can, um, you know, that, that is, that is a good way out of it is listening and open yourself up, opening yourself up even more. What's, uh, what's next for, for the two of you? What's next for Escape Hate and Light Upon Light? And when do we get to vote for you for public office? Because, I'm already, I'm already writing you guys in for uh, 2024. Well, that's for Nama then, because as a convicted felon, uh, <laughs> I couldn't even run for county treasurer, or I especially <laughs> wouldn't be able to run for county treasurer. Excuse me. If anybody, if anybody ever brings it up, just tell them it's fake news. Yep, there you go. <laughs> Irony. Yeah, I mean, next, I, I, I don't know. Like we kind of uh, go not where the wind blows that's the exact wrong phrase for this suggesting people that go where it's convenient um <laughs> but uh just you know have to sort of this is something that's ever unfolding and as i wrote to you when, when we emailed and i responded and said like if we push this to next week god knows what will happen between now and then that's what it feels like right now like there's a new crisis every day so you know that um that informs the direction that the organization takes. I think Jesse, if I'm uh, not sort of mistaken about that, but we have for, for the podcast, we've got um, a few uh, lined up and coming um, that are going to be very uh, uh, enlightening and, and also in my opinion, uplifting and moving as they always are. And uh, Jesse, I'll let you finish it off. <laughs> I mean, Nama summed it up. I mean, we don't like to be reactive. We like to be proactive and stay on mission with Escape Hate Podcast. We're going to wrap up a five-part series where I conversate with people that will represent sort of the hubs in the uh, network that we're trying to build to address these concerns at a domestic level. So we've had on Eldrew Jackson uh, from Inside Circle, who was supposed to do life in prison and now runs an organization dedicated to getting men, incarcerated men, to touch their humanity, uh, transitioned that into their conversation with a Ryan Lurie, former right-wing extremist that you mentioned, Tim. Um, and then we'll go forward now with conversation between myself and Tony McAleer, another former right-wing extremist, a conversation with myself and uh, Hope Hyder, whose father was killed by a white supremacist, and then a conversation with myself and Daryl Davis. Yes, which you've also already heard Daryl on, on one mm. On another episode, yeah. And then we'll get back to the regularly scheduled program because we're trying to set forth a paradigm of principles with key figureheads that can weave in and re-engage in conversations with escape hate as it goes forward and probably return to the original vision at some point, which is, wouldn't it be fabulous to watch Antifa and Proud Boys talk together in a sophisticated and safe manner? Wouldn't it be fascinating to watch a QAnon conspiracy theorist talk to a professor who has some expertise in conspiracy theories wouldn't it be beautiful to watch an incel talk to a female? 
these are the kinds of conversations that we think can be touching and that can tap into the conversation that we had today. So um, it's ambitious and it's hard to get anyone to talk to each other these days, but hopefully we'll be able to make use of it to do some good and to continue to paint to grays in between blacks and whites so that we can use those grays to create a canvas upon which we can create that world uh, or that new enlightenment that we're imagining. Wonderful. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, we live in unprecedented times and uh, I feel in great hands with the the two of you and the work that you're doing. So um, really, uh, every, my, my, my truly humbled uh, appreciation uh, for, for coming on and talking with us. And thank you for all the work you've done. Give yourself Sorry. some credit too, guys. Uh, we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the, the bravery and brass of, of Carl Space. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I do want to say that we are honored to be, you know, working uh, on Escape Hate with you guys. And, 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 and it's great that you guys have given them a, such support as well. So from a distance, Light Upon Light is also grateful and thankful. And I think that what we should do is use my propaganda skills and your guys' media skills to maybe make NAMA uh, a presidential contender. Uh, in four years. Oh, God, no. (laughs) Worst nightmare. Well, very cool. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all the kind words. And, um, and, yeah, what you guys have done and are doing is really admirable. So please keep it up. It uh, warms my heart just hearing about it.